2 Corinthians 1.12 says this, For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so towards you. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand, and I hope you will fully understand, just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaim among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it's through him that we utter our amen to God for his own glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. If I call God to witness against me, it was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy. For you stand firm in your faith. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did so that when I came... I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be full, uh, would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Sometimes in our life, conflict finds us even when we're not looking for it. Uh, so I'll tell you a story. Uh, me and my friends call it the legend of the dog man. Uh, so one night we were running, and uh, as we've done on, on several occasions, and uh, my dog Ruby likes to go for a run sometimes, and so I had my dog, and we were, we were just going through a run through the neighborhood, and so I get about a half mile into the run, and ahead of me I see this guy who has a big dog, giant, you know, ginormous dog, I don't know what kind of a dog it was, but it was a super big dog, then it had like a medium small size dog with it as well, so there's two dogs. So he's in the, in the sidewalk coming towards me, and so I see, see those two dogs, see this guy coming towards me, and I don't want to get too close to them because I got a dog as well, so I just kind of go around and go outside the sidewalk and, and run by him. So then I, I hear a lot of yelling and commotion and dogs barking, and so I'm assuming like he's yelling at his dogs because they were just kind of barking and stuff. Then I realized he wasn't yelling at the dogs, he was yelling at me. And I'm just like super perplexed because he's in the sidewalk. I run, you know, outside, not even close to him. And so he's yelling and, you know, throwing F-bombs and like, I don't know why you're running at me with your dog. And I'm just like, I couldn't understand what was happening. So I knew like this guy was a little bit unhinged. I knew it wasn't going to be good to stop and, you know, talk this out. So I just kept on running. Problem was, I had to go on a loop. You know, we would you run around and then come back. And so, like, as I'm running, I'm just afraid, like, he's going to be waiting in an alley and jump me on the way back. Thankfully, that hit didn't happen. But as I was running back, I did hear him down a side street, just kind of, you know, murmuring and swearing and yelling. And I get back and I'm talking to my friends and I'm like, what just happened? Like, 
why was he upset? Like, I didn't even come near him. He had two dogs, and he's right in the sidewalk. And they're like, we don't have any idea. Sometimes conflict finds us even when we're not looking for it. Maybe it's we're driving down the road and someone gets angry at us. Don't, maybe we don't even know why they got angry at us. Maybe we get angry at someone driving down the road. Maybe conflict finds us in our marriage. Maybe conflict finds us in our workplace. Maybe conflict finds us in our extended family. The passage that we're looking at today, Paul finds himself in conflict, another conflict with people in the church in Corinth. Paul had a complicated history with the, the church at Corinth. Uh, we know he wrote 1 Corinthians, and uh, he wrote that letter. And in that letter, in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, he talked about going back to visit uh, the Corinthians once again. And uh, he talked about going there uh, after he had gone to Macedonia and about how he was going to stay there for perhaps a whole winter. So in the meantime, he was going to send Timothy to kind of see how they were doing. So Timothy goes to the church of Corinth, and he finds the church just, it's just a mess. It's in disarray. Uh, these kind of uh, rabble-rousers come into the community, and they're just kind of causing trouble and turning people away from Paul, and it's just a mess. So Paul realizes he's got to do something, and so he goes, he decides he's going to travel to Corinth right away. It doesn't go well at all. Uh, they reject him. He describes it as a super painful visit. Uh, they are just rebellious. They're not listening to him at all. And he gets to a point where he just re realizes it's not worth fighting over. Like, he's, he's stated everything he could state. They are just rebelling against him. And in essence, they're kind of just kind of driving him out of town. And so he's not going to just stay and keep fighting with them. So he separates himself, goes back to Ephesus, and then he writes another letter to them. Uh, it's actually another letter to the Corinthians. When we think about First and Second Corinthians, uh, the, the, what we know as Second Corinthians is probably actually Third Corinthians or even more. There's a letter Paul wrote a letter to the Corinthians. In between there, uh, we don't have any access to that. We don't have any records of that. But he describes it here, and he describes it as a very painful and pointed letter. And in that letter, he tells the Corinthians, like, you need to change. You need to repent. Give up your rebellion. And thankfully, many of the people do that. Many of the people listen and, and, and repent. And so Paul writes, again, 2 Corinthians. And as he's writing 2 Corinthians, there's some in the church at Corinth who are raising another problem. So Paul had stated, on the one hand, he stated he was going to go to Macedonia and he was going to stay there for an extended period, or, or, or go to Corinth and stay there for an extended period of time. He doesn't do that. He only stays there for a short period of time. And uh, then he was supposed to come back to Corinth again after that. But he doesn't go back to Corinth because they're in the midst of a conflict. They're not listening to him. So some people in the church in Corinth are thinking to themselves, this Paul, he's kind of wishy-washy. He's kind of two-faced. Like he said he was going to come, he was going to spend the winter here, and he hasn't done that. He said he was going to come back, and he hasn't done that. And so they're thinking he's kind of two-faced or wishy-washy, even though he really hasn't done anything wrong. It's based upon what's happening in the church in Corinth that he's changed his plans. But he finds himself again in a conflict. It's a conflict that he didn't choose. And as we look at this passage, and we can kind of see how he responds to that conflict, and in turn, how should we respond when we find ourselves in conflict? The first thing that Paul does is he examines his heart. 
Look what it says in verse 12. For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity. When we see this word boast, it may take us by surprise because, you know, boasting is usually a bad thing. You know, we think about boasting about our accomplishments or, or whatnot. Uh, but in this context, what Paul is talking about, he's, he's, he's not talking about, you know, kind of puffing himself up and saying he's better than anyone else. He's just basically saying, I have confidence that I've been honest in my dealings with you. I'm, I'm confident that I've showed you love every step of the way. And he's not, com- he's not c- claiming to be sinless or anything like that. But he's basically saying, I have confidence in my integrity. I have confidence that I've been doing uh, the right things. He declares there's no duplicity in his heart. In verse 13, he says, For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and acknowledge. In other words, he's saying there's no duplicity there. I'm not writing and telling you one thing and really thinking something else. I'm not telling you one thing and then telling someone else something different. I'm telling you exactly what I mean. Now, circumstances change and plans change, but that doesn't mean my heart does. And so he examines his heart and he realizes that he has confidence in his integrity and his openness and his forthrightness uh, before the Corinthians. And when we find ourselves in conflict, the first thing that we need to do is ask ourselves the question, am I walking in integrity? Uh, Many, many, many years ago, uh, the Chinese built the Great Wall of China and they built it so that it would be a protection from barbarian invaders. So they built a wall that was extremely long, extremely high, and they felt safe and secure behind that wall. Problem was, in the first 100 years that the wall was built, they were invaded three times. But of those three times, none of them, uh, none of the invaders went over the wall. Instead, they bribed the gatekeeper, and the gatekeeper just let them right in. They were so focused on building walls that they forgot about teaching integrity. And I think sometimes we do the same thing. We're so focused on building walls, protecting ourselves, going on the offensive, being defensive, that sometimes we forget about integrity. So we need to ask ourselves some questions when we're in the midst of a conflict. We need to ask ourselves some questions like, am I someone who follows through with my promises? Do I say one thing and do another? Is there duplicity in my heart? Am I reliable? If I say I'll be at a certain place at a certain time, do people believe me? Do I follow through on my promises? Does my life match my, my message? We talked about this a couple weeks ago, about, uh, weeks ago. We talked about like authenticity and how the world is looking for authenticity. Am I truly, sincerely trying to follow Christ and walk in holiness? Uh, we need to ask ourselves, am I genuine? Do I tell people the truth or do I tell people what they want to hear? Of course, we don't want to simply communicate anything that comes to our mind, but also we need to make sure that we're genuine people. There's a company called Just Fake It. It's a Nebraska-based uh, company. And this company offers a very interesting and unusual service. Uh, basically, you can send them pictures of yourself, and they'll basically Photoshop you in any location that you desire. So you can pretend like you're in Disney World, or you can pretend like you're in Hawaii, or you can pretend like you're at the Lincoln uh, memorial. You could pretend like you're anywhere and then post it on Facebook and think people will think you're having a great time. And they even have a service where they'll give you kind of details and tips about the particular location that you're, you're pretending to be at. Uh, that you, you know, they'll tell you little uh, facts or, th- or things that you might not know about the particular location. 
They suggest that half of millennials have lied about their vacation, their travel plans for various reasons. And of course, that's a sad place to be in where you're pretending that you're on vacation or to try to boost up your image. But I think sometimes what we do is we do something similar. We kind of put on this fake front. The people, the, the thing that people see us is kind of an image of ourselves. It's not our true selves. And the question is, do, does anyone really know you? Uh, does anyone do really know you? Does anyone really see what's really on the inside? Are we genuine people? Or are we one person when we come to church and a different person when we go home? You know, sometimes people are like that. It's like, you know, people come to church and it's like, they're the most friendly, nice people in the world. And then, you know, you hear about them outside of church and they're like abusive and, and doing terrible things. Are we authentic? Are we genuine in who we are? And of course, you know, different contexts, you know, maybe we act a little bit different in different contexts. We might act different with our family or close friends than we do with strangers, of course. But there shouldn't be any duplicity. There shouldn't be a front that we're pretending to be one person when we're really another person. Living a duplicitous life doesn't help anyone, doesn't help any conflicts, and doesn't help us. The final question we need to ask is, am I at fault in a specific situation at hand? First thing we need to ask ourselves in a conflict is, what part do I have to play? Maybe we don't have the biggest part to play. Maybe we didn't start the conflict. But is there something that I have done that's ungodly? Is there something that I need to repent of? And as we look at these questions and maybe others uh, of, of examining our hearts when we're looking at a conflict, um, you know, maybe we get to a point where we just need to repent, maybe make amends or apologize to the other person. Or maybe not. Maybe we examine our hearts, and maybe like the Apostle Paul, we look at the situation, we look at our hearts, and we're like, like I haven't done anything wrong. Um, look at the situation. I was trying to be loving. I was trying to be helpful. I don't see anything that I've done wrong. But there's still a conflict. And, and in that situation, uh, what do we do? In that situation, we need to explain our motives. Even though Paul's motives were good, his uh, actions had the potential to be unclear. So he explains himself, and he says, I, I really did want to come to you. Uh, as I was going to Macedonia, and then as I was going back to Judea, I really did want to come to you. wasn't that my heart changed. wasn't that I was wishy-washy. It wasn't that I don't care about you anymore. Plans changed because it was really painful when I came there. And I knew coming back again, it was just going to be hurtful for both of us. And I just realized you guys needed some time to kind of process this, needed some time to repent. So I thought it was better to just kind of separate myself and send you guys a letter and then come back later. And so he explains his motives that his heart hasn't changed towards them. He still loves them. He still cares about them. He's not just driven by the flesh. He's following God's spirit and his plans are changed based upon what's happening in that situation. As believers in Jesus, maybe we have situations in our life where we're 100% right. We haven't done anything wrong. But that doesn't absolve us from responsibility for trying to make it right. That's why Jesus said something that I find kind of revolutionary in Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 to 24. He says, so if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. 
Now, this is a revolutionary teaching because uh, it seems like in this context, he hasn't necessarily done anything wrong. The person who's at the altar, he's coming to worship God. We don't know that he's necessarily done anything wrong. Maybe his heart is completely pure before God. His conscience is clear. But Jesus says, you still have a responsibility. You still have a responsibility to go to that person who has something against you and try to make it right. And the reason that is the case, I believe, is because uh, oftentimes, you know, problems and, and conflicts, they're not so simple or clear-cut. I mean, the world says, that, you know, if someone has something against you, that's their problem. they got to figure that out themselves. You know, they can just go fly a kite. You just do your thing and make sure you're right with God. But Jesus says, you need to go and make it right. Do what you can to make it right. Sometimes conflicts, most often conflicts are not as simple as they appear at first. Often conflicts arise not because of what happens, but because of what people think about what happens. Communication issues, of course, play a strong role in this. And con conflicts often arise because one person says something, and the other person thinks that that or says or does something, and that other person thinks that it means something, and maybe it doesn't. So in this context, Paul changed his plans. That's a fact. Everyone acknowledges that. He changed his plans. He said he was going to do one thing, and he changed his plans. Now, Paul knew that he, he, he didn't intend to do that. It was just uh, a circumstance has changed. But the Corinthians, some of them take that to mean he's wishy-washy. He doesn't care about us. He's just driven by the flesh, and he's forgotten about us. And so they're taking something that Paul did and taking it to mean something that is not really true. Paul really loves them. He cares about them. He wants to come visit them. And so misunderstandings like this happen all the time. And I believe that's why Jesus calls us to reach out to those uh, who maybe have something against us. Because maybe they think something about us that's completely wrong. They don't understand what's in our hearts. There's a man by the name of Glenn Consor. He's uh, an analyst for NBC, works uh, with the Washington Wizards a lot, uh, comments on their games. And uh, he was watching this game and commenting on it between uh, the Washington Wizards and the Houston Rockets. And uh, one of the Houston Rockets players' names was Kevin Porter Jr. And it was at the end of the game, and it was kind of a uh, buzzer beater. Kevin Porter Jr. Uh, made a shot to win the game. And then uh, Glenn Conzer said this. He said, you've got to give credit. Kevin Porter Jr., just like his dad, pulled the trigger right at the right time. So... The reason he said that was because he assumed that Kevin Porter Jr.'s father was Kevin Porter, uh, who was a famous basketball player from Washington who plays on, played on the Washington Bullets. However, wasn't true. His dad wasn't, didn't play for the Washington Bullets. His dad actually was involved with another altercation that involved a gun. He actually uh, shot a 14-year-old uh, child and uh, served four and a half years in prison because of that. And of course, people were in an uproar that he would make that kind of reference. And, you know, he came out the next day, you know, mortified and, and apologized and tried to reach out to Kevin Porter Jr. to make it right. Because, you know, there was no malice in his heart. He just thought he was commenting on the basketball game and talking about his father and how his father was a, was a good shooter. And so he had no idea that was happening, but he still had to reach out to make it right. And when we're in a conflict with someone else, our pride wants to hold on to the fact that we're right. 
And maybe we are. I mean, that's the truth. Maybe we are right. Maybe our conscience is clear. But that doesn't mean we don't have a responsibility to try to resolve the situation. I mean, what if Paul would have tried to, to kind of handle this from a worldly perspective? What if he would just kind of do it from a fleshly perspective? You know, he goes to Corinth. It doesn't go very well. Maybe he thinks to himself, I'm done with them. Maybe he writes the letter and say, you know, I've tried. I, I, I wrote this letter, uh, 1 Corinthians, to you. I, you know, wrote this other letter to you. I came to you. I loved you. I cared about you. And still, you don't listen. I'm done with you. What if he would have done that? That would have been the end of the relationship. And guess what? Those people in Corinth who were rebellious and thinking these things about Paul, they would have said, we're right. Paul doesn't care about us. Paul doesn't care about us. He is wishy-washy. He said he cared about us, and now he doesn't. Now, we can understand why Paul might do that, but the relationship would have been irreparably destroyed. That's why Paul says this in Romans 12, 13. He says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. We need to recognize conflicts don't always occur simply. It's often not just what happens, but what other people think happens or think about our motives. And we need to do what we can to fix the relationship when possible. Thomas Merton puts it this way. Do not be too quick to assume that your enemy is a savage just because he is your enemy. Perhaps he's your enemy because he thinks you are a savage. Or perhaps he is afraid of you because he feels you are afraid of him. And perhaps he's, he believed you were capable of loving him. He would no longer be your enemy. Do not be too quick to assume that your enemy is an enemy of God just because he is your enemy. Perhaps he is your enemy precisely because he can find nothing in you that gives glory to God. Perhaps he fears you because he can find nothing in you of God's love and God's kindness and God's patience and mercy and understanding of the weakness of men. Do not be too quick to condemn the man who no longer believes in God, for it is perhaps your own coldness and avarice and mediocrity and materialism and sensuality and selfishness that have killed his faith. Yeah, I think about the first part of that passage where he says, do not be too quick to assume that your enemy is a savage because he's your enemy. You know, and he might be thinking the same thing about you that you're thinking about him. You know, and I've seen this happen so many times, especially in, in marriages and, and things like that, where, you know, one party will just kind of bring up these accusations against the other party. You know, and they both have kind of different forms. The, the husband says, you know, this thing, these things about the wife. The wife says these things about the husband. And, you know, and they're different things, but when you get to the bottom of it, they both actually believe the same thing, which is often, you know, like, my partner doesn't care about me or my partner doesn't help me. You know, and it takes different forms, but they're thinking the exact same thing about the other. And often that happens in relationships. You know, we think, a person, think one thing about a person. It's not necessarily true. Other people think th things about us that are not necessarily true. You know, and from kind of the other side of it, you know, we need to be careful. We give people the benefit of the doubt. If we always think the worst about people, it's going to be really hard to have close relationships with people. We need to give people the benefit of the doubt. And when people have a problem against us, we need to do our best to, to reach out, try to fix it, try to explain our motives. And that doesn't always work. Of course, you know, sometimes it makes it worse. But as much as it depends on us, we need to reach out and try to work for peace. The final thing he says is that we need to demonstrate love. In 1 Peter 4, 8, Peter says this, Above all, keeping love, uh, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. 
You think about Paul, he says that he loves, uh, he states at the end of this passage we read that he loves the Corinthians. He wanted to show his love to them. And uh, we think about this situation, we think about our conception of love in our culture. And love often in our culture is either one, it's a feeling, or two, it's giving another person exactly what they want, trying to make them happy. Now, love in the biblical conception isn't about, you know, just an emotion. I mean, it often involves an emotion, but it's not just an emotion. And it's not about just giving someone what they want. It's about seeking their good above our own, seeking their welfare. And so in this passage, we see that Paul's love takes a different forms at different times. I mean, in 1 Corinthians, it meant sending them a letter that was harsh at times, but also gracious and loving at times. Um, they sends Timothy and then realizes he needs to intervene. And so he goes there, rushes there to, to, to help this church. That's what love looked like in that context. And then when it got really ugly, he love looked like kind of separating them from that situation, allowing them a time to repent. Then love looked like sending them a letter and explaining where they went wrong and inviting them to an opportunity to repent. Then love looked like sending this other letter, 2 Corinthians, and, which is not as harsh as, as the previous letter that he sent, but pre preparing them for another visit from him. So love didn't look like just making them happy or, or just keeping the peace for peace's sake. Love looked different in different circumstances. In the same context, when we're loving those around us, loving doesn't necessarily mean being a doormat. It doesn't mean just giving someone what they want, or feeding into their sinful tendency. Love can look different depending on the context, but love seeks the good of the other, and that's what Christ calls us to do, and that's what Paul demonstrates in this passage. Throughout this whole letter, throughout everything that he's done, love is at the forefront of what he's doing, and he wants the Corinthians to change and to follow after Christ and have peace with them. We need to seek to do the same thing. Just because a crisis occurs, just because we're in a conflict, it doesn't allow us the opportunity to be disobedient. Just because someone does something to us doesn't allow us to be disobedient. Christ calls us to love our enemies, love those who persecute us. On April 6, 2000, Ricky and Tony Sexton were uh, taken hostage in their Virginia home uh, by a couple who was on a uh, crime spree. The couple came up and took their a poodle out of the yard, and uh, then as, as the couple, uh, Ricky and Tony, came out, uh, these captors you know, pulled guns on them, ordered them to go inside the house. So they went in the, inside the house, and uh, Ricky and Tony responded in a very unusual, interesting way. They used it as an opportunity to show the love of Christ to their captors. They prayed for them. They talked about their problems. They showed them gospel videos. They made them something to eat. They listened to their story. During negotiations with the police, Ricky Sexton refused his own release when uh, these captors suggested that they might end the standoff by committing suicide. The story ended in a quite unusual way. Before surrendering to the police, Angela Tanner, one of the captors, left $135 and a note for the Sextons that said, Thank you for your hospitality. We really appreciate it. I hope he gets better. Wish all luck and love. Please accept this. It really is all we have to offer. Love, Angela and Dennis. 
Love has the power to be disarming. Love has the power to cover up over multitudes of, sin, of sins. And when we're in the midst of a conflict, even if we haven't done anything wrong, even if our conscience is 100% clear, when we reach out to show love to the person across the aisle, it can change the circumstance. It can disarm that person and defuse the situation. We find ourselves in the midst of conflict. Paul shows us we need to examine our hearts, explain our motives, and finally demonstrate our love. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your love for us, your disarming love that left heaven to come to the earth, die on the cross for your enemies, those who are far from you. Lord, we thank you that even though you are righteous and perfect and pure in every way, you didn't sit up in heaven just to judge us. You came to the earth to die for us, to reach out, to put out the olive branch, to explain your love for us to demonstrate it on the cross. Lord, as we find ourselves in conflict, as we all do, at least from time to time, Lord, help us first to make sure our conscience is clear before you, to make sure we are in the right, to explain our motives, to reach out to, to show peace, and also to demonstrate love to our enemies, to those who are opposed to us. Lord, we can't do that without your help. Our flesh doesn't want to do that. Our flesh wants to retaliate. Lord, through your Holy Spirit, change our hearts so that we can love and show grace like you do. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.